0: or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Carolyn Elliott about finding abundance through transmutation.
1: What is it to love really the part of our larger self that is so fragmented and so malicious? And what is it to have one's love be bigger than malice?
0: Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed, because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions, and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences, as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. This conversation is very radical. I love it, but it might be triggering for some of you, especially because I mention um, an explicit detail in one of my uh, sexual traumas. So if you feel very sensitive to that kind of information right now, um, I respect that. You know, don't listen to this episode. But I think um, this episode is important because it really talks about the core of my belief system um, that I seem to share more easily with people who also believe it or are interested in it. And it's essentially the fact that, um, as Carolyn put it in the episode, there's energy and there's information. And those two things tend to get overcoupled. So we feel energy and then we add the mind, I should say, adds information to that energy. It adds a concept or meaning. It adds a duality, a good or bad, or a condition. It might even add a future fear. I've worked with um, people who have hypochondriasis, so when they feel a symptom or a sensation in the body, the mind identifies it as something life-threatening. I myself experienced years of PTSD and flashbacks from um, uh, really painful, abusive situations. And it would come from an energy in my body that reminded my mind of the situation and then attached to it as if it was happening again. So there's this interesting, um, opposition. I, w- I wouldn't even say opposition, overcoupling of mind and energy. And Carolyn's work, as well as the work that I do and the work of Byron Katie, which we talk about a bunch here, which is called The Work, is really a, different methods and practices to get you to this very natural ancient place of just experiencing energy not calling it good or bad or right or wrong or should or shouldn't but I'm just experiencing it and we talk a lot about evil and bad and judgment and how loving someone who does something horrible isn't loving the act it's actually staying in an experience and maintaining a form of coherence in your own body of love that is able to be present and stable in the face of something hideous. And as you'll hear me say, somatically speaking, when we are love, because love isn't something we do truly, it's something we are, in, in my experience at least, There's a physiology of expansion, and from that physiology of expansion comes the capacity to deal, to tolerate, to accept, to feel, to experience almost anything. And the moment the body constricts and starts clenching and in defense of something, we lose that capacity. I'm not suggesting everyone should walk around open all the time. I think you should listen to your own body and see what it teaches you. That's the real foundation of my work, listening to your own body, letting it lead and teach you. I know from my own experience, the more time I spend in an open, loving place, regardless of where anybody else is, the better I feel and the better I am to other people. And that's my responsibility. And that's my prerogative, how good I feel and how well I can treat others. And I base where I'm at in my mind based on that. If I'm hurting someone, if I'm being rude, if I'm being short, if I'm triggered, I check in with my mind, what I'm thinking, what I'm attaching to, and I check in with my body. Where's my capacity? Where am I constricted? And just by making more space, I'm able to actually take in more of the world around me. And that's how this practice, which we spend most of our time kind of philosophizing together in this episode about, leads to abundance. Because abundance is not conditional. It's not like once I make six figures, I'm abundant. It's how much capacity do I have to fully experience my current situation? That's abundance. Because I have worked with hundreds of people who are millionaires. And they don't feel abundant because they're looking into the future for the right amount or the right house or the right moment where, okay, that's abundance their capacity is so low that they're unable to even take in the amazing amounts of money they already have. And the same is true, as you'll hear in the examples we shared today, of poverty. Being in poverty, do you have the capacity to feel the abundance of what's around you? Sometimes for me, I remember just seeing a tissue box. I would think, oh my god, there's a tissue box in the room I'm sitting in. That's incredible. Someone made that and I just get to enjoy it. And this might sound insane. And if so, then then so be it. Uh, but letting myself without any conditions or duality or judgment totally experience everything in my current situation means I'm in a great situation all the time. And I don't long for a future. And I don't cling to a past. I love my present. And I can honestly tell you, For the last 15 years, 90% of the time, if not more, I love my present. And when I don't, I have all this great work to fall back on. So I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. It's very um, interesting and new. And um, feel free to reach out and let me know your thoughts. Hey, friends. I wanted to take a quick pause from the episode to remind you that my next course begins on Sunday, July 4th. My course runs for six weeks long, and it teaches us how to listen to our bodies through nutrition, through herbalism, through the mind, and through somatic techniques. We meet every Sunday for an hour and a half, and every Wednesday for an hour. Sundays are class sessions, and Wednesdays are practice sessions. All the class sessions are recorded, so you have them for life, and you have them in case you have to miss one, so you can catch up. Throughout the six weeks, you'll have day-to-day support from me and your peers using Slack, which is an online workspace where you can go and ask questions, share recipes, share emotional experiences even. This allows everyone to learn and integrate and process in a safe, guided space together. If you have any questions and you're interested in this course, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com. There you'll find a tab that says online course and then the option to sign up for the free webinar, which is on Sunday, June 6th at 10 a.m. Eastern. This webinar will answer all your questions with a live Q&A and I will introduce the course to you so you have an idea of what to expect registration for the course opens up immediately after the webinar so if you think you want to take this course be prepared to register that day it tends to sell out pretty quickly if for some reason you're not ready now to take this course or you try and it's sold out don't worry i have another course coming up in fall i love 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 this offering and i look forward to seeing you all there now let's get back to the episode And I'm very happy to welcome back Dr. Carolyn Elliott. Thank you for coming back.
1: Hello, Louise. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, what made me reach out to you was, um, there was a newsletter you sent out uh, about Morticia Adams. And I have this piece I'm going to read that I copied from the newsletter. And I, after, you know after I read it, I was like, Is that why I was so into non-duality at like age eight? You know, (laughs) because I was watching with reruns of, you know, in repetition of the Adam's family. But I love this piece. So the part that I loved was you say in this one scene, when she's being tortured on a rack by the nefarious con woman who briefly stole her whole family's fortune. She says, unironically, you're a desperate woman consumed by greed and bitterness. We could have been such friends. (laughs) And then you say, the line is hilarious, but it expresses a great wisdom. Morticia recognizes and loves the darkness in her own self so she can love it in others, even in people trying to hurt her. And it just like, you know, spoke straight to my heart because we talk about um, empathy and compassion and, and openness to all the things we love. And then we let go of all these things we don't love and avoid and push and banish. So I'm just starting with that piece. And I'm just wanting to know what that means to you watching that with Morticia, what that means to you.
1: Uh, Yeah. Um, So (laughs) when it always comes back to me for, uh, uh, where it's already getting weird. Um, What it always (laughs) comes back to within me Mm. is I've had experiences of evil in my life. And I think maybe many of us have just experiences with cruelty, unlove. um, And once one has had those experiences, I think there's an interesting part of the human psyche that attaches to and identifies with it. And um, so having experienced evil there's a way in which I kind of have to love evil if I want to be able to fully love myself, because there's always going to be a part of myself. that's like, no, I know that that's part of my experience. I've, that's within me. Um, and so the interesting thing, <laughs> I mean, many, many layers of interesting things with it, but what I think about a lot today is coherence and um What The way that uh, when my heart is really, really open and really aligned, there's like a strong, coherent warmth and flow and whatnot. And I think in a grand sense, part of what evil is, is just kind of incoherence that's fragmented, it's confused, it's the part of existence that thinks that it's somehow isolated from that flow of love. So for me a lot of the process of integration and um coming to terms with being uh being incarnated in duality has to do with finding a way to let my coherence be uh stronger than the incoherence like so f- what I think is really interesting is um <laughs> oftentimes well, certainly there's the the duality of good and evil. And and I just sort of lost all interest in that duality. And what I'm interested in now is more the dance of love and evil because love and evil are not opposites um, for the reason that love is the very thing that has the power to enter into its opposite or dissolve, um, dissolve... (laughs) Dissolve polarity in a way. Um, And I think I may be veering into the abstract right now, but what I find Morticia Adams so endlessly inspiring because she's able to hold love and evil at the same time. And if you rewatch the Adams family, there are many intimations that uh, Gomez (laughs) and Fester are murderers mm. and rapists mm-hmm. and all sorts of things, and it's all sort of like ha 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 you know it's because there's such love and lightness woven into it um in the in the in the deep acceptance, but it's like, what is it to love the murderer? what is it to love the rapist? what is it to love um really the part of our larger self that's in our experience that is so fragmented and so, um, malicious, so malice. And, and, um, and what is it to become, to have one's love be bigger than malice so that I can like look straight. This is, I was just practicing this the other night was, um, speaking from my heart to someone who abused me as a child uh who's not in the room you know it was a metaphorical conversation a mm-hmm. practice conversation but just like really loving the fuck out of them like being like hey man you're fucking you know <laughs> you're evil and i fucking love you <laughs> i fucking love you and you're evil and i fucking love you and it's like uh, it was such a deep experience for me because um it was helped me to understand that the scariest, most fierce and grotesque things, if I'm unwilling to hold the space of love for them, they, uh, they basically get to uh, put me into fragmentation. They get to put me into, um, into that condition of uh, lovelessness wherein I am capable of doing harm and doing evil. So it's like.
0: Can I pause you there? Yes, please. I think it's really important that piece. Um, That's that's my exact experience. I never had those words for it. Um, But I think it's important because if I'm looking at someone, if I'm even judging someone in my mind for being evil, right? Like if I'm judging their actions, I'm judging them as a person, I'm dehumanizing them in my mind. I'm already incoherent, aren't I? Because you feel, and anyone listening can even just notice this, like once you get really embodied, you feel that split through your center when you're in opposition, right? And I think this is why I wanted to have you on. This is sounds sound really egoic, but I don't know anyone besides you and myself, who is able to talk this radically about loving evil. Truly, maybe Byron Katie, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know her but you know it's like that's the only other teacher I've found that's really able to actually say the words like I can love the rapist and when I say those words in public spaces people get really angry and scared I totally respect it like I, I understand why they would because we think loving means becoming or condoning or doing or and I guess I'm I'm finding more and more that loving isn't this thing that I do, it's this thing that I am. It's like a state, right? And it's a state when you're not in opposition. And I think what scares people about that, and this is where I'm I'm curious what you were just saying, if you're looking at the person that's done something horrendous, to you, even, let's say, and you're able to look them in the eyes and say, Um, what you did was horrendous, like what you did hurt. What you did is not okay. Uh And I love you. I love you because I know you're confused. Like you did it, you committed it, you wanted to do it, but to want to hurt somebody has to come from a state of confusion, right? Mm -hmm. So do you have that same awareness that when you're looking at someone or doing this meditation that you're actually loving someone who is incoherent versus evil, actually, when you get to the root of it?
1: Absolutely. That is, so yeah, um, to use so what I like about the terms coherence and incoherence is that they're sort of just more describing actual kind of vibrational realities, um, and less right with the moralistic judgment. Um, so absolutely. So to, to do that kind of harm, you have to be gravely confused. You have to think that it benefits you somehow to violate somebody in some, in that way, and that's just not true. (laughs) And it's just, you know, a deep, deep confusion, And so, yes, like, um, it's almost like I get an image in my mind of, like, I'm looking at um, someone who feels uh, like a broken glass or, like, a a really discordant note in music, like, some sort of guitar string that's just, like, freaking out and, (laughs) like, not tuned correctly and... And, um, and I'm tapping into the understanding that it's like, um, can I hold a coherent resonance that is stronger in this moment than their madness and their incoherence and their confusion? Um, and not that it's my job to like save everyone, but it's my job to, um, stay in that strength and that coherence myself. And the only way that I can do that is just exactly like we're talking about, like not getting into opposition with that incoherence, but just letting my unity be uh, louder and stronger. And then I actually <laughs> oh, talk about love and evil. Um, I'm very inspired by the words of Alistair Crowley. So Alistair Crowley said, um, you know, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. And I think about this, um, love under will as, you know, love that is deliberately directed even into what, uh, what I have natural aversions to. Obviously one would be averse to somebody who had wronged one. Obviously one would be averse in those situations, And um, there's a way in which I can have a love beam out of me that doesn't really have to do with personal liking or personal, you know, it's not like I want to hang out with this person who abused me as a child, but I do want to send them an endless amount of love and really include them in my sphere of connection and divinity. Uh, Because unless I do that, I'm confused myself and I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like what happens when I have that kind of confusion, because when I have that kind of confusion, I will do things to numb out from my experience. So I'll relapse on nicotine or, you know, I'll sit in front of the TV and eat a pizza. (laughs) And it's like, okay, I can do that. It's okay. It's ultimately all right. But it's like uh, that those kind of things happen when I'm trying to avoid something when I'm trying to not be completely in love with everything in reality and everything in my experience. And I, as I practice the stuff that we're talking about, you know, the work of Byron Katie existential kink, the embodiment, the more I do that, the more I get like less and less willing to not be in that really centered resonant place.
0: I I agree. I think what's interesting about that is that, that, um, Seductive sensation that we get from the pizza and the cigarettes and the television show just becomes like your waking state it 's like when you're when you 're regulated to use the you know, somatic term it 's like when the system has that regulated homeostasis there, there's a physiology of abundance that mm. lives out of non duality mm-hmm. so coherence there 's a physiology of coherence where actual tissues and fascia and, and organs are opened slightly like there's a literal physical opening right and in that opening you're actually taking in and giving out everything that's where when you're saying about the i don't i don't want to be confused like i don't like how it feels to be confused necessarily um and you speak about loving the the evil person it's like loving the evil person isn't loving their actions or um, isn't, like you said, it isn't even liking them. It's you. It's really about you, isn't it? It's like you're in the state of love because it serves you and you know you can serve everyone better from that place. It's not about mm-hmm. fixing them or loving them so they can heal. It's more about loving them so you can heal. hmm Right?
1: Absolutely.
0: And that's and, what the and coherence as a side is effect
1: on. bonus. Oh, go ahead.
0: No, no. I was just saying that's what the coherence is. Born. That's such a clear state, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, and as a side effect bonus, I do think it, it might open up the etheric airways more for them to heal if they decide to go and do that. But something that I like to think about um, is just how every one of us came into this world as such a innocent, precious, adorable little baby. Like I have a little baby daughter and it's just mind blowing for me to think of, you know, Hitler was a cute little baby. Uh, (laughs) You know, everybody, everybody who ever committed a terrible crime was once a cute little baby. And, um, that somehow they encountered, how do I say, uh, let me, let me take a leap for a minute. So this yeah. gets into another crazy thing that I, I happen to really believe is true, which is that the gods traumatize us, that trauma comes from the gods. Um, and that the point of it, of the point of these exposures to seeming unlove or evil or fragmentation, incoherence that we have is to break open our, um, our ordinary identity and compel us, drive us to um, accept a divine identity for ourselves. So basically, trauma comes from the gods as pressure to compel us to grow into gods. That's <laughs> that's the sense that I can make of it. And sometimes along the way, it kills us. Like, um, you know, it kills us, it fucks us up completely. But then the thing is, is that we just keep coming back until... <laughs> Until we uh, we we attain the rainbow body, so yeah,
0: I you know that that's a beautiful, really beautiful way to put it about the gods traumatize us to propel us to grow, because um I I often talk about trauma being our life force, and it's the same concept with different mythologies or words or lineages, but it's just, it's essentially what you're saying. It's like trauma isn't the opposite of God; trauma is God. And it's overwhelming amounts of God. And if your situation or your environment or your body couldn't, didn't have the capacity to hold that much God, then you get traumatized, don't you? And that's why I don't see trauma as a bad thing, actually. I see it as an inevitability. And mm-hmm. traumatized is like where it goes. You might get traumatized, you might not, but trauma is part of breathing, right?
1: Absolutely. And... um I love to hear you say that. It's very refreshing for me to hear you say that about how trauma is not ultimately a bad thing. I, I completely agree. It's like built in to our experience as humans. And um, I've personally never met somebody who was not traumatized in some intense way or another. As you know, sometimes it's less obvious that it happens. And I, so what I'm interested in, what I think part of what makes Uh, life in the modern world very difficult is that our mainstream narrative is that there is no larger meaning or larger point to trauma or bad things happening. Like it just happens and it's meaningless and it's pointless. And uh, it's just because the world is cruel and, you know, you deal with it or you don't and you die and that's it. That's secular materialism. And it leads to, um, it's sort of that kind of narrative makes resentment and blame and anger seem like the only sane responses to, um, to trauma, to pain, because it's like, well, uh. <laughs> what else, you know, like why why have any other response? Um, and I think that that is so disempowering, and it's such a um a way that our culture keeps many people in this role of waiting for somebody else to fix it, of you know hoping, waiting for the abuser to apologize for some sort of redemption to come from somebody else. and I think why I'm so passionate about teaching magic and hermeticism and All of this has to do with, I really, really want people to understand that, uh, secular materialism is bullshit designed to enslave you (laughs) and that, uh, you can decide that your trauma and your pain has profound meaning is a touch from the gods is a touch from life force itself and is your opportunity to, um, grow more much more fully into your divinity and that your divinity is not some like uh airy fairy ideal but it's like actual badass electricity and love that moves through you as you hold this paradox and you know creates beauty all around you
0: the whole time you're saying that i'm seeing the forest and Mm -hmm. i'm seeing like one of my favorite things to do is to walk into the forest and, and watch trauma, watch the wind, watch the tree sever in half from the lightning, watch the decaying body of a deer that was killed by a hungry bear. Just watching the life force of death life move through in such a gorgeous way. And because there's no there's no remnants of human beings, there's no personal projection, so it's beautiful. Like we don't walk into the forest and cry when the tree breaks. We're like, a tree broke. Wow, look at those mushrooms growing on it. Or you know, look at the moss over here where it's dark. We're like amazed by trauma in nature. But when trauma hits our bodies, like you said, there's this concept and construct set up and believed and internalized about. Resentment and blame and uh, victimhood and retaliation are the only options. And what's so interesting about that, from uh, a somatic perspective, is the activation you feel in your body when you're angry feels empowering. And for so many people, they they're living dissociated outside of their bodies, and so the first moment they may have felt anything was from anger. So then we actually identify the anger as us and what we need and how we have to hold mm-hmm. on to it. And I, I love the work that I do because I get to watch people identifying with the anger, but then noticing that the anger actually activates them in a way that's slightly dissociative as well. Like yeah. they don't fully feel, they're not fully open and it doesn't create, It doesn't anger doesn't build capacity. Anger builds a lot of movement. It builds a lot of activation and charge, but it doesn't build capacity. And when you're talking about the guitar string earlier, the only reason we can hear that guitar string is there's all this capacity in the body of the instrument, this echo chamber that can hold the vibrations, whether they're beautiful or ugly, right? And with anger and those, those like trauma responses of the body, there's a constriction that occurs. And what we learn based on even what you're saying with coherence and incoherence, that's an incoherent state, it's a, it's a polarity, right? Mm-hmm. Versus when that activation of what we're calling anger turns into coherence, it actually transmutes into something nourishing, doesn't it? And then you're just, if anything, you're more productive, and you're more sane, and you're actually more empowered and healed. And the person that hurt you could be dead, could be alive. It doesn't actually, it's not even about them. It's about what your body's holding still. So I'm curious oh. what your experiences around that transmutation of anger initially as oh I'm empowered, I'm angry into My anger is hurting me. How do I guide this and redirect it?
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, So for me, I do a lot of my transmutation through sexual energy and erotic energy. And um, so the existential kink practice involves... (laughs) Well... Putting so, one thing that I experiment with that has often been productive for me is taking whatever it is that I'm feeling, and it could be anger, could be frustration, could be, you know, feeling like not good enough, feeling uh, shame, guilt, send it right down to my genitals, and just let that be the locus of it. This, this very sensitive place, and let myself feel the vibrations there. And, um, a very simple, very powerful visualization. I wish that I had thought about this and wrote about it in the book, but it just came to me recently and I've been working with it lately is to imagine my usual body dissolving into the earth and that my genitals are some sort of, um, <laughs> lately I've been imagining it like the, like my clitoris is like the librea tar pit and there's all this <laughs> yeah. dark intensity there mm. and a, bolt of lightning of divine love and lust and joy just comes right down right into that tar pit and electrifies it and potentiates it and releases it. And as I do this visualization, you know, I'll usually experience like a literal, like quaking movement in my body, sometimes literal actual climax, sometimes just the sensations, you know, the erotic sensations. Basically it's a, it's a cool visualization and shortcut to letting myself be touched by the divine lover and letting all of this pain and this intensity and this discomfort be metabolized, transmuted, electrified into lightness, into, yeah, into literally light, uh, into, you know, just the, um, the raw energy that it is. So it can be liberated and it doesn't have to stay in. Um, sometimes I think about the way that yucky feeling energy is just energy with a a weird story on it, right? It's like energy plus information and something that the divine lightning bolt helps to do is remove the information, remove the weird story on the energy and just let the energy move.
0: I love energy plus information. You know, there we have our term, I, I shouldn't say our, the term in somatic therapy is overcoupling, but mm. that's exactly what that is. And with the way you said it, it is much more um, it resonates more for me. It's more pagan, if you will. Mm-hmm. But, you know, energy plus information is like you overcouple these concepts onto just free energy that wants to move. But the concepts hold it in place, don't they? Mm-hmm. So when you see that lightning come down and removes the information and you're left with the energy, I mean, what a blissful experience.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. You know, when you were, um, I don't, I'm just feeling called to share something personal. When you were talking about your practice, I got this memory of uh, when I was 11 years old and I had experienced um, my first sexual assault. Uh, one of the one of the experiences, you know, was he grabbed my chest so hard he left these scars from his fingernails on my chest. And I was born with breasts, and that's one of the reasons why I was sexually assaulted because it was very threatening for this like androgynous. Bodied person to be with, you know, cisgendered men. And I remember going into the bathroom like a couple days later and taking off my clothing to shower and seeing the scars and having this like jolt, like this hor- horrible jolt. Like it was definitely a traumatic moment just to see them. And then, you know, it was pure uh, intuition. There was no training or anything. I didn't even know what I was doing until looking back on it now. But I remember just touching them really gently and feeling arousal and self-pleasing. And something about touching this place that had felt so violated and was in so much pain and had like the physical remnants of abuse still. And at the same time, my body expanding with an orgasm and having energy move through it. I, I really think it was like one of the moments that saved my life, even though mm. it was very hidden. I, mm. I even dissociated from doing it until recently I remembered it. But you telling me that that practice, I can see when we go back to this idea of trauma is God, trauma is nature, essentially. These practices that you're, you're teaching, and I can see through that and a couple others when I was growing up, It's something that's just so of the earthly body to do. It's it's not about um, anything rational. It's not even about a set goal. It's just about what the body knows how to do if you're not judging what it wants to do. Is that is that right?
1: I think so. Yes, (laughs) yes. I mean, I think that that is the thing. Is like, um, right? Like, there's uh, ways that animals in nature will just shake things off, let things go, and um, and I think that our bodies, like you 're saying, like they know how to receive mm-hmm. divine energy, divine love, mm-hmm. even into the most tender, you know vulnerable places, and the funny thing about us humans is because we have uh, both logos and eros because we have meaning making capacity. Um, we can get ourselves so confused and constricted and hold on to things in a way that uh, keeps us distorted or fragmented instead of aligned with that really strong energy of just bliss and flow.
0: Yeah, because it's like that same energy that's shocking the body when a trauma occurs in that energy as well it 's so so nuanced when you like you know it 's like this and then when you pull it apart there 's all these layers to it in that energy that traumatizes is bliss and is extreme sensation and pleasure and excitement and curiosity and you know ecstasy and to the mind it 's inappropriate it 's inappropriate to feel those things when you 're also feeling traumatized or when you have scars on your body because someone hurt you or, you know, you, you've been called a certain name or you've been beaten, like whatever it is. It, it's like the mind would say that's inappropriate. And there's something very Christian about that to me. Um, whereas I think what you're illuminating here is without that information, if it's just energy and it's just a felt experience, really a felt sense it all belongs, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. the trauma and the beauty and the pleasure and the pain, they all belong. It just depends if we're expanding or constricting into it.
1: Absolutely. Before we before secular materialism was fucking with us, it was repressive religion. And of course they operate still alongside each other. And um, one of the things that's hilarious about Christianity... <laughs> um, you know, is this insistence on like things, how do I say, uh, things need to be good. We need to be good. We need to not be bad and we need to not let bad. (laughs) happen. And, uh, you know, and then of course the great, um, shadow cast by all of that institutional Christianity is that a lot of bad, a lot of harm does happen through it, specifically um because it gets so <laughs> So actually I was thinking I was asking myself this this gets into some far out territory, but um I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about uh you know what would it really take to create an equitable society. Because I see, you know, things on Instagram and the whole kind of social justice flavor, like I really, really empathize but really, really love the idea of, you know, freedom and equality for all. And how do we bring that forward and make sure that everybody has lots of dignity and everything. But a lot of it does have, uh, you know, a lot of this sort of resenting, blaming, shaming kind of tone to it. It's very understandable. And also I'm like, well, I don't think that resenting and complaining are ways to, (laughs) will really make it happen. What would it really take? And I was thinking about it and, um, the answer that I came up with was a little bit shocking to me because I think a lot of what we see in our, in the United States, for example, uh, when people are murdered by police, it's uh, unconscious human sacrifice. It's dishonored, irreverent, fragmented, incoherent, um, acting out of something which also has sacred dimensions to it, violence, death. Um, So I think about how there were at one time on earth, all of these cultures that practiced very reverent sacrifice of honored um, sacrifices, the Aztecs, the Lakota, you know, all, all over the world. And what I think is interesting about that is I think that allowed those cultures, not that those cultures were necessarily, you know, perfect or completely equitable or anything, but it allowed those cultures to maintain a kind of coherence and a kind of dignity and honesty through their willing, voluntary (laughs) participation in the sacred dimensions of horror and violence and that um, our culture has lost touch with that in part because christianity was like okay well jesus was sacrificed and his sacrifice stands in for everything so we don't have to do human sacrifice anymore um because jesus did it and now we can just all sympathetically participate in the benefits of the sacrifice that he made and i guess that would be true if um we knew how to if more people knew how to really (laughs) <laughs> embody being christ-like <laughs> but that's a it's a challenging thing to do anyways i was just thinking about how um that have you did you see the movie midsummer i did not well it's theoretically a horror movie and it's about um people getting sacrificed at the swedish midsummer festival not to give you spoilers or anything <laughs> i i recommend watching the movie because it's very very interesting it's um sort of like this little Swedish society has like deep empathy, like they empathize very vocally and very intensely together. And they have this kind of idyllic life, which they apparently maintain through very empathetic, very reverent human sacrifice. So anyways, just um, just thinking about this and like what it takes to be in relationship with the gods in a fully... Uh, <laughs> fully welcoming way i'm not i'm not necessarily saying that we need a revival of human sacrifice i think the alternative to actual physical human sacrifice is um willing sacrifice of egos and i think a major way that that can happen is uh through practices like the work of byron katie like existential kink i'm i'm sure like things in somatic therapy and also things like um You know, psychedelic medicines, I think are really, really excellent for that. So like willingly letting the part of us that is so attached to feeling separate and opposed, um, sacrificing that, letting that have some deaths could be another answer, which reminds me of the, the stuff that you wanted to talk about connecting with um, abundance and like letting <laughs> in the feeling of wealth, right? I'm
0: laughing because we're talking about so many amazing things. I'm like, oh yeah, abundance. i forgot about abundance. <laughs> you know, well, it just
1: taking me back there because I think that um, oftentimes the pursuit of wealth and money is conceived as this very uh, egoistic sort of competitive thing. And certainly it can have that. But for me, my experience to opening up to letting myself have much more of that in my life has had a whole lot to do with um, allowing myself to be humiliated, to let my ego and the part of me that's very attached to feeling put upon and opposed, to let it be humiliated and slayed by the realization of how much... uh, wealth and pleasure I already have in whatever form that seems to take. So you mentioned an email that I had written about Mount Oliver. Should I talk about Mount Oliver?
0: Yeah. And because, and just right before you do, um, that's exactly what I was, what I wanted to tie this into was when you're in, when you're open to the current reality, right. And you have, and you're, you're coherent, not to what you wish you had, but what you have. You get this shock wave of like I'm the wealthiest person in the world, and when I was reading about Mount Oliver, it was it was reminding me of that. And so I wanted you to explain how you didn't come to this work because like now you're wealthy and successful. Like you came to this work, and then all that was a result. And so Mount, <laughs> o- <laughs> right? so Mount Oliver is part of that. So give us like in a short abbreviated version of that experience. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. So um, for a while there, I was living. I. I gotten out of grad school and I was living on a friend's couch and my friend lived in this neighborhood called, uh, called Mount Oliver and Mount Oliver is one of the most depressing places in the world. (laughs) You know, it's in Pittsburgh, my hometown, which is, uh, but it's a particularly boarded up gray, depressed trash everywhere kind of place. And I was living there and, um, I was a lot of the time feeling quite sorry for myself and, you know, just (laughs) how, why did my life suck so much? And why was I trapped? I didn't have a car. I didn't really have a job. I was like working on my internet business. (laughs) And, um, but I was experimenting with these ideas of, you know, what if there's a way to be in relationship with this that is really, really different. And what if, you know, I've been saying that this is so terrible and I hate it and I don't want it and it sucks, but like, what if there's a part of me that is deeply touched and deeply fulfilled by this grayness and this ugliness and this scarcity and everything? And can I let myself just be deeply touched, deeply stroked and fulfilled by, um, even this kind of debasing <laughs> sad situation, and I found that with some persistence, it turned out that I could. I could experience how much my there was a part of my heart that was just deeply, deeply satisfied by being in this sort of wretched, nasty place, just so amazing, just like <laughs> and and just had endless sort of thrills in the fantastical humiliation of checking my bank account and being like, Oh, there's minus $50 in there. And I guess there'll be minus a hundred dollars there tomorrow because the bank's going to keep charging me. I'm wow. (laughs) And I think what it was is like, I let myself go a little bit mad. I think that's what is necessary for this because um, sanity as it's usually defined is, uh, feeling displeased by sucky things. So giving myself permission to just go a little bit mad and be wildly pleased by all this stuff that sucks (laughs) had this very strange effect. I still to this day, I am in awe of it. I'm in awe of the way that it works when I apply to other areas of my life. Because as soon as I let myself go a little bit mad in that way and start being wildly pleased, suddenly things that are wildly pleasing, not in a perverse, freaky way, but in a very straightforward, lovely way (laughs) start to appear and start to happen. And it's just like, I connect, you know, like we're talking about the bodily experience of that, you know, openness and coherence and like feeling pleasured and feeling fulfilled. It's like we humans as the crazy little divine creatures that we are, we really are like these fun little tuning forks. And when we, let ourselves get tuned into that. It's really fascinating how quickly everything around can rearrange. Yeah.
0: I just love that. It's such a wonderful story experience to uh, witness. And it's such a, it's such a testament to the, for me as well, like the reality of the human experience. It's, it's not like, um, think what I love about it, you know, the way I love existential kink mixed with the work especially coming from a background in somatics, I just love how um, they all just constantly show you that you're not here to trick yourself. Because it seems like, and it's a fun word even, to trick yourself, but transmute is really, for me, the appropriate word because you're not tricking yourself into being happy just as much as you were tricking, yourself, were tricking yourself into being sad. Like you're transmuting energy. It's all a trick at the end of the day, but it's like, which, which trick feels better? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> which, which trick is more efficient? Which trick brings you more bliss and joy? It amazes me when um, I, I speak to people sometimes how, and when I go to my own experiences, how we can um, believe that the sadness is just the only option Um, and then the happiness is another option, but it's all kind of like unpredictable. We never know when we're going to get one or the other when really, again, it's all, we're all tricking ourselves through the alchemistry of the body, you know, the hormones and the mind and the spirit and everything opening or closing tricks us with sensation. Like we were talking about with anger earlier. Mm -hmm. So when I see you in my mind's eye, I, I lived in a town called Lancaster, Pennsylvania, And um, there's a really trashy part of it that I lived in. And I think of, and we didn't have locks on our doors. We were like, we smoked these horrible cigarettes called Cheyennes. They were like 95 cents and they were flavored like cherry or something. And we just lived off these Cheyenne cigarettes and like uh, gas station food. And I was, when you were talking, I was remembering one time sitting on the front stoop and just trash blowing by but I was able to see it like beautiful leaves blowing by. It was, it would just, it wasn't a trick. Like I love everything, like an affirmation. It was like, what part of my body loves living in trash, right? And John Waters is like the filth elder with this. Like what, (laughs) Like, like one of my saints on the altar, you know, how can I not just like tolerate trash, but worship trash. And then the moment I worship the trash, I'm so open, That the kind of pleasant, more pleasant trash like money and such, just is right. I'm so able to see it, right? (laughs) Because oh my my god, I
1: love that money is the more pleasant trash. That is so fantastic. John Waters truly. I'm glad. I'm so glad you brought him up because he truly is a a saint of this kind of uh, tantra that we're talking about. I learned so much from um, the movie Desperate Living. I feel like it taught
0: me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Desperate Living, and I I mean, I mean, Desperate Living is probably the most raw.
1: Mm -hmm. You know,
0: people would always want to say Pink Flamingos, but Desperate Living was so raw because it was so, it was like the first one. It was so strange, Mm -hmm. like the lobster scene. It's just like such an intense movie. But I think it's, uh, yeah, I I agree. Like when I watch those films, I literally see um, a satire of the world of tantra right mm-hmm. of just transmuting trash into beauty and ecstasy
1: mm-hmm. uh, absolutely and um i feel like rocky horror picture show gave me the same transmission
0: that's and, right that was mm-hmm. like the mainstream like it got cut it through in a way that john didn't but mm-hmm. uh yeah i just want to thank you for your work um i love your work i love reading what you write i'm happy you came here and gave, gave me some of your time so the listeners could hear this. It's very radical things that I think are just, for me, the only way to live. So i love to bring other people that are close to that or living in that to share their, their wisdom. So mm. I thank you so much for that.
1: Thank you, Louise. I, a deep pleasure talking to you. I look forward to finding more ways to connect <laughs> in the future.
0: Me too. For more information on Carolyn and to take her courses or follow her work, you can visit carolyngraceelliot.com or you can visit her on Instagram at carolynelliot well I hope you enjoyed today's episode my question for you is where do you feel the episode take a breath and just notice what's your body doing right now sit with it Let it speak to you, and let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen, for all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.